This episode contains graphic language and content that may be alarming to some. Listener discretion is advised. Just north of Pasadena, California, lie the foothills of the San Gabriel Mountains. They're a popular weekend destination for hikers, with miles of trails leading past canyons, waterfalls, and scenic viewpoints. One of the most well-known vistas is at Little Round Top. Hikers who reach the top can see all of Los Angeles laid out below. Many also take a moment to visit the gravestone there. The gravestone reads, Owen Brown, son of John Brown, the Liberator, died January 9th, 1889. You may not know Owen's name, but you might remember his father, John Brown, from your middle school history class. Because back in the 1850s and 60s, John Brown was among the most famous people in the United States. To some, he was a martyr. To others, he was a terrorist and a murderer. Here's David Reynolds, author of John Brown, Abolitionist. So I see him really as a warrior against injustice. There were at the time four million people held in slavery and bondage. And he considered slavery a war against an entire race of people. Frederick Douglass said, I could live for the slave. John Brown died for the slave. John Brown was an anti-slavery activist known for his sometimes violent tactics. He sealed his place in history on one deadly night in the fall of 1859. In the early hours of the morning, John Brown and a small group of supporters invaded a federal armory in the town of Harpers Ferry, Virginia. His plan was to steal the weapons stored inside, give them to local enslaved people, and lead an uprising against their captors. John Brown does take over Harpers Ferry, they do emancipate um, a fair number of enslaved people, and they took captive their enslavers because John Brown wanted to use these white masters as hostages. What happened, however, is that he stalled too long. The plan went sideways, and after a standoff that lasted several days, John was captured and many of his men were killed. The raid on Harper's Ferry was a failure, but it electrified the country. Today, the raid is viewed as a pivotal moment in the collapse of the U.S. into civil war. The South said, aha, you see what the North really wants to do? It wants to go against the Constitution and wants to advance abolitionism. In the aftermath of the raid, John's son Owen managed to escape. Years later, he would relocate to California, where he was greeted as a hero. His father, though, was tried for treason, murder, and the incitement of a slave rebellion. John Brown had been wounded in the raid, so most of the uh, time during the trial, he was lying on his back on a cot. But he managed to get up at the very end after his sentencing and said, you know, I simply came here to free enslaved people, and I willingly will mix my blood with that of the millions who have died as enslaved people. On December 2nd, 1859, John Brown was hanged. He was the first person executed for treason in the history of the United States. But on his way to the gallows, he passed a note to his jailer. It read in part, 
I, John Brown, am now quite certain that the crimes of this guilty land will never be purged away but with blood. He was soon proven right. Things I couldn't change, I'm looking back, yeah, yeah. I live in the past, tripping on my past, yeah. Uh, trying to stop myself from running back, yeah, yeah. I see where we going, I'm taking it back, yeah. From Interval Presents and Awfully Nice, this is The Last Resort. I'm Shutezkot. Episode 6, Civil War. The FBI is investigating former President Trump for potentially violating the Espionage Act. That's just this past August, FBI agents conducted a search of Donald Trump's resort in Florida. They were looking for secret documents that he had kept after leaving office. To some, the search was a sign that Trump might have broken the law. But to Trump supporters, it was a sign of something else entirely, that the government was corrupt. We have got to change our federal government. We have got to say to ourselves, this cannot be our country. This is Gestapo crap, and it will not stand. Yeah, Biden administration, the Democrats are weaponizing the FBI, and it has to stop. For some of these supporters, there was only one solution to a corrupt government. In response to the FBI search at Mar-a-Lago, some Trump supporters have also increased calls for a civil war. Yeah, it's go time. Everybody knows exactly what I'm talking about. The Democrat Nazis have gone too far. You just pulled the pin on the grenade, motherfuckers. Give me 5,000 motherfucking willing souls and we go to war. These calls for civil war weren't just talk. Threats against the FBI spiked dramatically, and one armed Trump supporter attacked an FBI office in Cincinnati. He was killed in a shootout with police. In one of his last posts on social media, the attacker wrote in part, this is your call to arms. I am proposing war. Kill the FBI on sight. Incidents like these are fueling a lot of anxiety in the US. In a recent poll, more than 50% of respondents said they expected a civil war in the next few years. But how that war might start is an open question. Here's Stephen Marsh, author of The Next Civil War. It could be a massive act of violence. It could be the abortion laws. If the southern states try to sue people in other states for medical procedures they've had in other states, that creates the whole legal crisis that preceded the first civil war, you know, almost exactly. What caused the first civil war? If you ask the average person on the street, they might say slavery or states' rights. Some others might say it was secession. Starting in late 1860, southern states began seceding from the Union. By the following April, the United States was in a full-blown war. Over the last five episodes, we've tried to figure out what would happen if California seceded from the United States. Today, we focus on the question that looms the largest. Would CalExit cause a civil war? Stephen Marsh thinks the answer is, yeah, probably. A peaceful, negotiated exit would just be too hard to pull off. The political requirements for secession actually require a lot of goodwill and a lot of common sense. And of course, you know, the reason we're having this discussion is exactly because serious political discussion has broken down. So, I mean, that's why I think violence is much more likely. 
Not surprisingly, Louis Marinelli disagrees. That's kind of the, the irony of it, because we believe that the best way to preserve peace in North America, to avoid a civil war in North America, is to have a national divorce. And that means that we can agree to disagree, the red states and the blue states, agree to disagree on these hot-button social issues, abortion, transgender issues. All of these issues are what people are fighting about now. So which is it? Would Calexit cause a war? Or is it, as Lewis claims, our last best chance to avoid one? Lewis is right about one thing. Secession by itself didn't cause the first civil war. People say that a state can't secede from the Union because it automatically starts a civil war, like we saw in the 1860s. And that's not historically accurate, actually, because if you looked at the timelines of when the South seceded from the Union, some of them had seceded for several months before the hostilities started. Here's Professor David Reynolds again. Lincoln was devoted above all to the preservation of the Union, and he knew that if he pressed the issue of slavery too hard, then he would alienate a bunch of states that later became the border states. After the South seceded, President Abraham Lincoln tried to bring them back, even if it meant keeping slavery. It was only when the Confederacy attacked the U.S. that war broke out. The Civil War did not start because Arkansas or Texas or Louisiana or Mississippi said we secede from the Union. It started when there was a military conflict at Fort Sumter. So according to Lewis, if the Calexit movement stays peaceful, there would be no reason for the U.S. to declare war. Our campaign was always about a peaceful vote. Let the people vote. If the vote had passed, we already won at that point in time. The victory is already there, and you can't take it back, and the whole world would see it. And that would be the victory. Lewis has repeatedly pledged that Cal Exit would be peaceful, and you can't have a war without two sides that are willing to fight. But on the other hand, can we really take Lewis's word for it? Got some shocking news to report now. California secessionists have claimed they've opened an embassy in Moscow. Louis Marinelli told the LA Times, quote, we want to start laying the groundwork for a dialogue about an independent California joining the United Nations right now. In December of 2016, news broke that Cal Exit had opened an embassy in Moscow and that Louis was actually living in Russia. The revelation sparked confusion and alarm. Was Cal Exit somehow a Russian operation? Imagine if your goal was to take the United States down a few pegs. Imagine how helpful it would be to that goal if you had a chance, even a slim chance, of splitting off from the United States one of its 50 states that on its own terms is the sixth largest economy in the world. It led some people to wonder, Maybe a civil war wasn't just a potential risk of Calexit. Maybe causing a civil war was actually the whole point. And it raised another big question. Who the fuck was Louis Marinelli? California today, the leader of a ballot initiative for California to withdraw from the United States, addressed claims he's working with the Russian government to undermine democracy in the U.S. He promoted the idea of an independent California at a conference in Moscow last year. Do you think people might grow skeptical and concerned this movement is just part of some sort of a bigger strategy by the Kremlin to destabilize the West? If Marinelli does have a close relationship with Russia and is attempting to weaken our country, that could be criminal. 
Уважаемые дамы и господа, несколько часов назад в Соединенных Штатах Америки завершились президентские выборы. On November 8, 2016, Americans cast their votes in the presidential election, and the world waited to find out, would the winner be Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump? Lewis remembers the moment distinctly. I was in Russia, and it was morning there, actually, because it's the, the time change, it was morning, so I actually was in the middle of a class, and I had my phone there kind of watching the results come in. I'd also like to congratulate Mr. Donald Trump with his victory in these elections. And uh, once the results kind of came in that he won, I canceled the class and we had a party with my teenage uh, Russian students who were there to learn English. We had a little party. I don't like Hillary Clinton and I didn't want to live in a country that Hillary Clinton would be the president of simply because she was a woman. We were a fringe movement that most people believed was a pie in the sky. And so I didn't really anticipate there being any kind of sudden growth of support. So I, I decided I was going to go to Russia and start a new life there, just like go off into the sunset type of thing. And uh, then Donald Trump got elected and screwed everything up. <laughs> this wasn't Lewis's first time living in Russia. His ties to the country go back years. My first time when, when I was in Russia was as a student. I went to Russia to study abroad in 2006 or 2007. And I had a Russian wife during this time who I brought to the United States from Russia. And I had lived in Russia and I had worked in Russia before the campaign for Calexit. Lewis's politics and his ties to Russia started to align in the summer of 2016 when Calexit was invited to a conference in Moscow called the Dialogue of Nations. Ladies and gentlemen, two years ago, the longest-serving elected leader of the California Republic, Jerry Brown, boldly declared in China that California is a separate nation. The Dialogue of Nations brought together secessionists from all over the world, from places like Catalonia and Northern Ireland, but also from the U.S. Here's journalist Casey Michelle. You have the Texans, you have the Californians, you have all these Europeans that are just going around in a table, introducing themselves, talking about what they want, talking about the history of their movement, talking about why they need Russian partners to succeed. While he was there, Lewis got to know a guy who would change his life, an extroverted Russian named Alexander Yanov. It was Yanov who had put the conference together. It's organized by one guy, one Russian national, Alexander Yonov, who is really this strange character you kind of can't make up. He's like six and a half feet tall. He likes to wear these dapper suits and these alligator skin shoes. I mean, he's a, he's a very well-dressed man and he's definitely a presence in a room, but he's also this incredibly goofy character that runs this supposedly nonprofit charity called the Anti-Globalization Movement of Russia. So what is the Anti-Globalization Movement of Russia? I and mean, you go on the website, you go on their social media, and it's all about how everyone should support, like, Bashar al-Assad in Syria, should obviously support Putin in Russia. Yona's group got funding from the Kremlin. He has this um, a thank you letter from President Putin himself saying what a good job he was doing. He has it framed on his, his wall in his office in Moscow. After the conference, the collaboration between Louis Marinelli and Alexander Yanov continued. 
When CalExit wanted to open a California embassy, Iyanov provided them space in his office, rent-free. At the press conference announcing the embassy, Yanov can be seen sitting next to Lewis, wearing a large gold watch and a dapper maroon suit. Journalist Casey Michelle remembers watching the press conference. He couldn't believe that Lewis would be seen with someone like Yanov. The guy who's supposedly leading the California independence movement is sitting in Moscow next to this guy who we know is funded by the Kremlin under this banner of California embassy. Things got worse. Reports emerged that Russia wasn't just inviting CalExit to conferences and giving them free office space. It was also helping them out online. There was also a huge upsurge in social media rhetoric around, uh, you know, California, get out, you know, CalExit now, yes, California, et cetera, et cetera. Um, much of that was tied directly to uh, Russian uh, uh, social media trolls. Back in California, Marcus was reading all the negative press about Lewis and Russia with increasing astonishment and anger. I think within a week it was, well, Russia must have backed the whole CalExit thing. And that it's all financed by Moscow and it's some secret plot. And I mean, that's just not true. Marcus thought the Russia controversy was being blown way out of proportion. But from the outside, the situation looked sketchy at best. And by February of 2017, it was clear that the movement was in big trouble. Marcus tried to do damage control, starting with Lewis. I begged Lewis to come back, and I said, brother, we both thought it was a good idea for you to go out there, but now it's a horrible look. The look is just horrible. You have got to come back. And I couldn't convince him to do that. Meanwhile, Marcus was also trying to keep Caleg's supporters from bailing. We were just hemorrhaging people, hemorrhaging people, hemorrhaging people. So, I mean, it really hit us bad. Marcus... I think, found a spiel that he could give people to explain why I was in Russia. It wasn't actually all true, as I understand, but he found something that he could say to people that would placate them, and he found his job to be easier after that. One group of allies that Marcus wasn't able to smooth things over with was the California National Party, or the CNP. If you recall, the CNP was another CalExit group. Theo Slater was a member. I mean, the biggest mistake I ever made was meeting with Lewis at all. Lewis going to Moscow and starting what he called an embassy there. I think that was a, a huge mistake, especially in the context of just how geopolitics were going at the time. That mistake is ever more obvious today. The CNP loudly condemned Lewis's actions, trying to distance itself from the bad publicity. Marcus thinks this is what ended up hurting the CalExit movement the most. Yeah, a lot of the other CalExit groups were immediately like, we aren't associated with you. We lost half our members more to the CNP saying, these guys are backed by Russia. Their criticism cost us as much as the Russia angle. That's the point I want to make. For Lewis, though, the whole Russian scandal was missing the point. Sure, he thought, maybe Russia did want to destabilize the United States, but Americans didn't need any help doing that. Look at how, many, how much political animosity there is in the United States. It's not because of Russia. It's because of Americans and our diverging values and things that we believe in. The Russians are responsible for the abortion debate and Roe versus Wade. 
And there's more and more political violence in the United States on a daily basis. It's not because of Russia. It's because we have diverging values and it's, and it's increasingly divergent. And at some point in time, I believe that we're going to have a civil war if we don't agree to disagree or find another solution. On November 2nd, 1859, the abolitionist John Brown was convicted of treason, murder, and inciting a slave rebellion. To try to save his client, John Brown's lawyer had made a surprising argument, that he had lost his mind. As evidence, he presented to the court a document that Brown had helped to write. It was a new provisional constitution for the United States. Here's author David Reynolds again. One can see why um, his constitution was considered insane because it was so forcefully anti-slavery and so distant from the original constitution in many ways, both in its defense of enslaved people, of other oppressed people such as Native Americans, also in its form of government, In some ways, John Brown's constitution was familiar. It had three branches of government and ideas like the freedom of religion, but it also called for a few radical changes. Citizens of all races and sexes would have equal protection under the law, including the right to vote. For him to even countenance the idea of African-American suffrage, Native American suffrage, and possibly women's suffrage is rather astonishing. Uh, and very, very different from the original U.S. Constitution. It abolished the Senate and set term limits for elected officials, and it ended the Electoral College, establishing the direct, popular election of the president and of Supreme Court justices. In short, it brought the U.S. much closer to being an actual democracy. You see that he wants a pure democracy, unfettered, by the devotion to the so-called republic, which today uh, we tend to be. There was some weird stuff in there too. For example, no swearing. But on the whole, John Brown's provisional constitution laid out reforms that today a lot of us would see as visionary. The lesson that we can take from John Brown's constitution is a belief in the equality of people of all ethnicities who make up the United States of America. It makes you wonder, what if John Brown's constitution had become the law? Could Donald Trump have become president without the Electoral College? Would Roe v. Wade have been overturned by a Supreme Court that was elected directly by the people? Here's Stephen Marsh again. The problems in American government are structural. They have nothing to do with the American people or the goodness in the hearts of the American people or whatever. The Texas separatists and the California separatists go to lengthy claims that they're constitutional, right? Like if you go to their website, it's almost the first thing on there. Why this is constitutional. Why do you care? If you're going to found a new country, you're going to need a new constitution. If America isn't working for you, it's probably because the American constitution is broken. What caused the last American Civil War? Volumes have been written trying to answer that question. 
But some experts think you can boil it down to one thing. Not slavery, not states' rights, not even secession. It was caused by the Constitution. The structure of the Constitution, to a large degree, caused the Civil War. There's no doubt about that. The U.S. Constitution was very pro-slavery. And then uh, the South, of course, said, hey, we're just following the Constitution. The U.S. Constitution was always designed to give some people, specifically white men, power over all others. And from the Senate, to the Electoral College, to the right to vote itself, safeguards were put in place to make sure rich slave owners could never be held to account by a Democratic majority. When people like John Brown tried to change this broken system, the South seceded rather than surrender their grip on power. The result was, as John Brown predicted, the bloodiest conflict in the history of this country. More Americans died in the Civil War than in all other American wars combined. Our last Civil War gave the United States an opportunity to fix the problems in our system of government. The forefathers missed that opportunity. They declared enslaved people to be liberated. And then, in the name of unity, they allowed the South to go right back to enslaving them, just under a new term, Jim Crow. They kept the Senate and eventually created more tactics like the filibuster that made it even more undemocratic. They kept the Electoral College so that unpopular leaders could win the presidency. And they kept the unelected, unaccountable Supreme Court just as it was. They maintained the status quo. Through that lens, it's no surprise that some people might think we might be on the verge of another civil war. The only surprise is that it took so long. The Russia scandal set into motion a rapid collapse of the Cal-Exit movement. Tens of thousands of supporters abandoned the cause. Left to clean up the mess was Marcus Ruiz Evans. I got all the angry phone calls. Let's be clear. Lewis never dealt with any of the angry phone calls or any of the angry members or anyone in California asking about what the hell are you doing in Russia? He never took the calls. So I got to deal with about 100 phone calls from people yelling and screaming. And I got to do people accusing me of being a foreign spy. So I know better than anybody the repercussions and the fallouts. With Lewis still in Russia and few allies remaining back in California, it was clear that Marcus would never be able to gather enough signatures to get CalExit on the ballot. It was impossible to organize signature gathering because, you know, you get an email going, oh my God, I heard you're trying to buy Russia, or a phone call and they're yelling and screaming. You got to take that, right? Because otherwise they're going to start going and yelling and screaming on your channels and getting more people to leave in, in mass hysteria. In April of 2017, Marcus and Lewis announced that they were giving up on the ballot initiative. And Lewis, he was going to live in Russia permanently. It all hit Marcus pretty hard and threw him into a years-long depression. And uh, that was probably the worst, darkest point of my life. And I honestly, I don't... It was about four or five times there, I didn't know if I was going to make it. Real talk. It seemed like CalExit had blown its big chance. But Marcus wasn't giving up. He believed that these kinds of movements take time. And while CalExit had lost some momentum, it had come a long way since he first started writing about it in 2012. 
I remember when I wrote the book and some of my friends were saying, this is going to take you years to pull off. And I kind of looked down at my feet going, God, am I up for this? I, I didn't know. You have a dream, you stick with it for 10 years and you see it come to fruition. And then I had the darkest point in my life in 2018. If I was going to quit, I should have quit in 2018. I'm still here. Marcus dedicated himself to rebuilding his life and CalExit. But as you'll hear, his challenges were only just beginning. We should also point something out. Marcus is definitely right about one thing. Movements to transform governments often unfold over years, if not decades, and they don't always fail. In fact, there is one example of an independence movement right next door to California, where supporters fought for autonomy for generations, and in the 1990s, it finally happened. Hundreds of armed peasants have seized control of four towns in southern Mexico in a protest over land rights. In our next episode, we'll tell you the story of the independence movement that worked. A story about revolution, about justice, and of course, about land. What would it be like to live in an independent California? To answer that question, we'll look to Mexico. So they just said, you know what? We've been here for thousands of years, and we're declaring this area autonomous, and we're going to grow our own food, make our own clothing, teach our children in our, our ways, our value systems. We're going to organize ourselves so that we can survive the next thousand years. That's next on The Last Resort. The Last Resort is an Interval Presents original production from Awfully Nice. From Interval Presents, the executive producers are Alan Coy and Jake Kleinberg. Executive producers from Awfully Nice are Jesse Burton and Katie Hodges. Written and produced by Jesse Burton and Dana Balut. Associate producer is Suzanne Gaber. Project management by Kadi Kamakate. Editing, sound design, and mix by Nick Cipriano and Kiana McClellan of Bang Audio Post. Original music by my boy, Matawai Yuhi, and me, Shutezkot. Theme song by me, Shutezkot, and Sweet Sound. Fact-checking by Lauren Vespoli. Script consultation by William Bauer. Operations lead is Sarah Yu. Business development lead is Sheffi Elenswig. And marketing lead is Samara Still. I'm your host, Shutezkot. For a full list of the sources used in this episode, please check the show notes. Make sure to follow, rate, and review The Last Resort on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening. I run with the wolves, we run through the woods, we run where we won't. Ah.